Hello there and welcome to episode 87 of Right Where You're Sitting Now. Now this is a bit strange, I'm sat at home recording this on my phone. I did record this intro before and for whatever reason it didn't it didn't save. So I'm recording it onto my phone and I'm going to try running it through the fancy new Adobe AI voice enhancer thing that's meant to be brilliant. So if it sounds brilliant, yay Adobe. If it sounds terrible, well, that's obviously a bad review for the AI capabilities of Adobe. As you can probably tell, it's just me this week. As you can probably tell, just me this week, no co-host. Um, and before we get into our guest this week, I've just got to put out an appeal. I, I'm told constantly that I don't do this and I should. Uh, could you give us reviews? If you're a listener to this show and you listen on Spotify or Apple or whichever podcatcher you use, uh, give us a review. And also, one thing I'm interested in is what is it you guys want to hear us make shows on? Are there any particular guests you feel we're missing? particular topics you'd like to hear us cover uh we're really interested um you know we've been more and more engaging with with our listeners which is great and we actually you know actively encourage that we'd love you to tell us what you want (laughs) i mean you're the guys listening to this we're 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 just the the makers so if you drop us a message we're at sitting now on twitter and instagram and you can leave comments at the in the youtube videos you can email me ken at sittingnow.co.uk you can leave messages in the comment sections on the site, but really do engage with us. I mean, we're going to be starting a Discord soon with a Patreon thing. I'm, not, I'm still learning how to do that. <laughs> it's pretty new to me, but uh, yeah, that's going to be coming soon as well. But yeah, really do let us know what it is you kind of want to hear from us. I know we've been a bit of cult heavy recently, so the, the, today's episode is obviously less of that, which is nice. But you know, we don't want to be just an occult podcast. We've always been a fairly broad when it comes to what we cover. Yeah, if there's, if, if there's a particular thing you think we're missing out on, in particular, like something glaringly obvious, then let us know. We, you know, we're really happy to, to hear from you and to take your suggestions, so do drop us a line. Anyway, this week, as I said earlier, is a little bit different. We're not covering an occult topic per se, although you could say it's a scientific approach to an occult topic. <laughs> Uh, Our guest this week is the wonderful Eric Wago. Um, I'm a big fan of this guy. He's written the books uh, Time Loops and Precognitive Dreamworks. And he's looking at the the concept of precognition through sleep. And he makes quite a compelling argument. Uh, I can't can't recommend the the book Time Loops and Precognitive Dreamworks enough, actually, if you're interested in this kind of thing. I can't remember who it was that recommended it to me now. There's someone... Recommend, actually, a few people recommended it, uh, Time Loops, to me back in the day. I can't remember can't remember who now, but, uh, you know, if, if I've forgotten you and you're screaming at your speaker, then I apologise, but uh, it was recommended to me. So, yeah, thank you, whoever recommended it to me. Anyway, enough of me jabbering on. Let's uh, get over to Eric Wargo and a really interesting interview, I think. And, uh, oh, yeah, I won't bother recording an outro for this, because outros, when it's just me, they just always seem a bit pointless, so... So we'll just cut to the end in music. But uh, yeah, thanks for listening in advance. (laughs) And we'll cut over to the Eric Wilgo interview now. Eric Wilgo, thank you so much for coming on the show. I was wondering, could you give us a brief biography of yourself, please? 
Brief biography. Um, sure. I, I grew up in Colorado in the United States, uh, in the foothills outside of Denver, um, and went to college at the University of Colorado in Boulder, and then went got my uh, graduate degree in anthropology at Emory University in Atlanta. Uh, I currently live in Washington, D.C., where I am a science writer uh, by day, and a pseudoscience writer by night is where <laughs> is how I like to characterize it. Um, uh, yeah, about 10 years ago, if you want the sort of backstory of my my work on uh, precognition, about, well, actually about 14 years ago now, I, I had a minor UFO sighting, actually, which uh, led me down the path. I was at that point an, an editor for a, a psychology organization. And, you know, I was not I was I didn't I was not like closed minded to paranormal topics in general, but I was pretty closed minded to ESP topics. But when that UFO sighting got me to read about UFOs and sort of their constant linkage with psychic phenomena, I realized, oh, well, I can't just like blanketly reject you know, ESP here, I need to do my due diligence and, you know, find out what that's about. So I started researching uh, ESP research and at the same time started, I'd, I'd been a long time dream journaler and, and I started like paying attention to those dreams, you know, that I'd always kind of ignored that seemed to be about subsequent experiences in my life. And I realized, oh, wait a minute, <laughs> something's going on here. And uh, so for the past, I don't know, a little over a decade, I've been uh, writing and researching about uh, psychic phenomena, actually. I mean, the, the topic of UFOs is is too fraught. And <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, it's a minefield. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a minefield. So yeah, like I, I just sit back and uh, I'm an interested uh uh, audience right now for the whole <laughs> field of ufology. Yeah, it's gone crazy, isn't uh, it? Recently, it's uh, it's insane. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, but yeah. So, uh, I have written two books. Um, the first book was Time Loops, which was a sort of a a, a kind of massive tome about uh, the evidence for precognition, um, the physical theories or in reinterpretations of physical theories that are starting to make better sense of precognition and uh, its connection to depth psychology, specifically um, psychoanalysis, because I, uh, my argument, and this is an argument that runs through both of my books, is that uh, Sigmund Freud's uh, metapsychology, that is his theory of the unconscious, uh, is really kind of a ready-made theory of precognition. I mean, he personally didn't believe in, 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 in precognition, but you can really just slightly tweak his theory and it really makes a lot of sense of these phenomena. Uh, and so then after I wrote time loops, after that came out, I was just inundated. There was like a chapter in there on dreams, but I was inundated with emails and people coming up to me after talks, wanting to talk about their dreams. And I realized, oh, there's, there's a need here for a book. That's just very kind of focused on, on work on precognitive dreams, what they are, what they mean and how to work with them. And, uh, so I immediately sort of wrote a, a much more focused book called Precognitive Dreamwork and the Long Self. Um, uh, and and I've just now finished my third book, looking for a publisher about precognition and creativity, because I think uh, that 
creative inspiration is every bit as precognitive as you know dreams maybe uh, that might be interesting so do you want to talk about that briefly um how you feel actually maybe we should we should go back more and look at um kind of what what is a time loop i think that's this seems like a very broad question but um you know for the uninitiated it might be a you know a good starting point i think yeah time loops are really for me the the core of this and this is what i think sets my work apart from there are a lot of people writing about precognition uh especially lately um it's a topic that's i think gained a lot of traction over the last couple decades um but it's not just a matter when you accept the idea that that somehow we are we can get information from our future okay that's what precognition means you know, in general, being influenced by future experiences. Um, you know, it's not necessarily seeing the future, but it can be being sort of subtly influenced or subtly directed by the future um, in one way or another. Um, when you accept that, then you come up against this other question, which is, well, how does that affect causality how does it affect free will and so on these these kinds of uh questions people will, will say well you know isn't that impossible if you know if information from the future affects the past then um you know how does that relate to our understandings of of free will and causation um and the there is a single answer to that and that's that well causes really happen in loops in one way or another uh you can't get a you know, we do not precognize, and this is this distinguishes, I think, my argument from other argument, uh, other works out there about precognition. We do not precognize possible futures, you know, or possible alternative timelines and things like that. We precognize actual future outcomes, but often in a very distorted way, uh, in in a way that that then allows us or leads us to fulfill those outcomes in our life. Uh, and, you know, there's no, so there's no question of paradox. You know, the question of grandfather paradox often comes up for people who, who are doubting or skeptical of the reality of any kind of time travel, because precognition is just a kind of time travel, right? It's a kind of informational time travel uh, backwards in time from the future. Uh, and that always raises these questions. Well, that could cause a paradox, right? You could foresee um, your, you know, death on an ocean liner and then thus, you know, or actually that's a bad example. You could foresee um uh you know a, a a certain plane crashing and then you could call the airline and you know don't fly that plane and then it wouldn't happen. And then that's a paradox because where then was, did your dream come from? Um, it's the, it's not so simple <laughs> the way it works, uh, be, but because the universe is self-consistent and there aren't these you know, paradoxes do not occur by definition. Um, well, how is it that we get information from the future? And how is it that, that the universe remains self-consistent? Uh, and, and the answer is time loops or what I call time loops. Um, that is to say causal loops. I'm using the term time loops kind of loosey because it sounds better than saying causal loops. But I'm really talking about causal loops. I'm talking about uh, a an influence from the future toward the past, which in some way deflects 
deflects things onto a course that fulfill that future outcome. Um, and I think this is an incredibly interesting lens onto, onto, uh, onto the unconscious, basically, onto uh, the way information for our future takes an oblique path uh, in reaching us in the present, for instance, in a dream, it's a it's a whole new way of looking at why dreams express things the way they do in symbolism, uh, and in in association and puns and things like that. Um, because if if the future, uh, you know, again, if the future reached us just very directly, if we got video quality, you know, feeds from our future uh, that included outcomes that would we'd rather prevent, you know, maybe not something like a death, but, you know, just some bad outcome at work, say, you know, we would take take measures to prevent that. Um, and that would create paradox. So information has to reach us in the past in this kind of oblique symbolic fashion. Uh, so that's why I said earlier that I think Freud is kind of, he kind of offered a ready-made theory, essentially, of how precognition manifests. He just didn't understand why, uh, you know, his, you know, understanding of dreams is that they were the disguised fulfillment of repressed wishes. Uh, well, I think, no, that they're the sort of necessarily oblique, indirect, disguised, sometimes um, thoughts and feelings and emotions and sometimes wishes from our own future in response to our future outcomes in our life uh, that are reaching us in this code of oblique way and that in one way or another get us to fulfill uh, what we've kind of foreseen or foresensed uh, maybe in a dream or maybe in a, some kind of flash of inspiration or a neurotic symptom. You know, I, I, I think that the neurotic symptoms are, are often precognitive or presentimental of um of future outcomes too that's interesting so i think in the book I, i'd heard of this before but in the book you mentioned this thing called retro causation um and this mm -hmm. is a, a this is a concept in physics isn't it um yeah. and in a way do, do you i mean obviously it, you're a scientist so you have to kind of prove your theories or at least attempt to you know um prove the theories did you use the physics model to to, to work with the time loops model as it were yeah that's what uh, a big part of time loops is is sort of integrating um the kind of the on the one hand the esp evidence from laboratory research and the mountains of anecdote that are very consistent um on esp experiences with the kind of evolving understanding of causation and retro causation in physics now i'll haste to add i'm not a physicist you know i'm a science writer I, I my scientific background is in anthropology so it's not 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 directly you know applicable so i i really spent uh, and unfortunately in, in in this topic you'll see a lot of people invoking quantum physics in a sort of loosey-goosey oh yeah was the, the amount of books writing. i get sent that say quantum yeah. you know and you, you actually quantum look at it you're like oh, yeah, yeah quantum consciousness non-local oh, yeah. consciousness yeah, yeah. You know, there's a million new age writers out there sort of using quantum to sort of validate um, their ideas. And I did not want to do that. I, you know, I really spent a couple of years just immersing myself in, uh, in quantum physics, trying to understand, you know, I already had a good understanding of relativistic physics, you know, which, you know, the, the physics of Einstein, 
uh, is, you know, very beautiful and elegant and a person you can understand it without knowing the math and all, all that stuff. It's a lot easier. It's a lot more, you know, once you get it, you get it. And it's, and it's, and it's very beautiful and elegant, but quantum physics is a lot more difficult. Um, and unfortunately there are not very many, uh, physicists out there who are capable of expressing their ideas in plain English. I mean, they, they'll always lapse into equations and stuff. So they're talking to a very tiny community of people who understand those equations. But there are enough writers out there that that do know how to convey these ideas um, in a in a understandable way that uh, that, yeah, I was able to educate myself and it took a while um, about uh, about sort of competing theories, competing interpretations in, in uh, quantum physics. And one of the interpretations that's gaining ground in recent years is this idea of retro causation. And actually a term that's come into vogue since I wrote that book uh, is super determinism. Uh, and this is kind of an umbrella term for a lot of different alternative theories uh, explaining all the famous spooky quantum behavior that you'll read about, you know, things like entanglement and so on. Um, there are a lot of alternative competing explanations for a lot of the phenomena, the famous phenomena in quantum physics. And one of them is super determinism, which is essentially this idea that we live in this, you know, a four dimensional block universe of Einstein and that, 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 that causes are locked in not only from the past, you know, pushing from the past, but also backwards from the future. And that's another way of saying retro causation. That is causes traveling or propagating uh, from a future time point towards a past time point. And this is the, essentially the physical theory that makes something like precognition possible. Uh, and there are, at the same time as there are these, these new kind of ways of thinking in quantum physics about retro causation, there's also this emerging field of quantum biology and quantum neurobiology, which is showing how the brain, uh, is capitalizing on quantum effects. And if you, and if, and if your idea is that quantum effects have to do with retro causation, then right there, you have the beginnings of a possible physical biological theory of how precognition may work that the neuro that the nervous system may uh may be you know the the my nervous system at time at this time point may be pre-sponsive to itself you know a second from now or a minute from now or a day or a year from now um not just responsive to the past in the form of learning and memory and, and all those things that we understand pretty well from psychology. So uh, there's, I think there are a lot of really interesting trends in a lot of sciences that are all sort of coming together and converging uh, at this point. And that's kind of what time loops is about is about this convergence that's happening uh, that is going to help make sense of precognition, not as some supernatural, um, phenomenon, but as, as something that is going to have a, a material explanation and by material, you need to put an asterisk by that word, <laughs> you know, you know, nobody in physics thinks that matter is solid anymore. I mean, that's, 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 that idea is gone, but, uh, but, you know, materialism for me is just the language of science and measurement and so on. Things being measurable 
uh, matter is stuff that's measurable. And uh, it's just a language for talking about uh, causation in the world. So um, the, you know, there are a lot of, you know, trends in the sciences that are leading to, um, to a perfectly plausible, you know, physical, biological explanation for how we can get information from our future or how we can be influenced by events happening ahead in time. And that's to me like incredibly exciting. I mean, this, this is, there's nothing more mind blowing than, uh, than any kind of time travel and even just informational time travel. Um, but it's, you know, that I think is what a nervous system is, mm -hmm. is a kind of time machine, literally. So how did they, I mean, we'll talk about how the kind of more esoteric world responded to the book, but how did the scientific world respond to the book, uh, Time Loops, when it came out? Crickets. Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> no response whatsoever. Oh, no. no response whatsoever. Which, I mean, I, I, you know, which would you rather have? I, I guess I w would rather have had some pushback that I could engage in debate but you know no no one's responded the mainstream scientists are like really there they refuse to go there and engaging with this topic anything smacking of esp yeah it's is funny toxic if you are especially if you're a psychologist psychology has a particular um history of of just absolute refusal of dealing with anything related to parapsychology. Um, and they've done this for, for decades. And there's a, there's a long tradition, you know, you'll in your psych 101 textbook, there'll be a chapter at the end on pseudoscience. And, and, and that's where they'll talk very disparagingly about the history of, of parapsychology and attempts to study um, psychic phenomena. And it's so, you know, young scientists are trained from already from their undergraduate years to just regard anything uh, uh, smacking of, of, of ESP as, as bogus. So it's, you know, there's, there's a big, uh, yeah, and it's and it creates this 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 huge truth gap, I think, between what everyday people experience on a daily basis uh, and know to be, you know, I, I know to be true. I mean, that sounds to a psychologist that sounds like, a, well, okay, when anyone who knows anything that degree of certainty is, you know, they've they've got a mental illness, you know. But you know, honestly, you do, you, we know we know certain things in our lives, yeah. and one thing if you've worked. If you've worked with your dreams, um, you know, and you're a, a, you know, scientifically educated person who understands, you know, the problem, issues of bias and so on, nevertheless, you can work with your dreams, even understanding that, that there are all kinds of ways in which we're biased. Nevertheless, the evidence of, of precognition in dreams is, is just utterly, utterly clear if you pay the topic any attention at all, uh, both in your own life and in what's written. I mean, there's, there's a, a million books, uh, on this, on this topic. And, you know, these full of examples that, that are not, you know, you, you, you'd have to be crazy yourself to think that these people are a lying or that, that this is all the result of, of bias and, 
and misperception. Um, but they, but psychologists just don't even look at that material. So there's a huge gap between what actual people experience on a daily basis, nightly basis, and, and what is, you know, written in psychology textbooks and, and, and journals. Um, uh, yeah, so no, yeah. So in answer to your question, how the scientific community respond, you know, zero. And I'll add, you know, physics, physicists are equally averse to people, you know, they, they are very sensitive to the, the uh, you know, be, because of all those people usually putting quantum, you know, new agers putting quantum in their books, you know, they are, you know, really hypersensitive to, to anyone trying to use some some um, neat physical theory like retrocausation to justify or explain paranormal experiences. I mean, they just do not want to have anything to do with that because, again, it's toxic for their reputations and so on. So, uh, yeah, so I, I haven't even, you know, I, I, I quote a lot of physicists, you know, uh, in my book whose work I love, I, who I think, you know, oh, my God, they're like going to be you know, they're going to be winning the Nobel Prize in a couple of decades for their work on, no, on retrocausation. But, you know, I, I, I don't have any kind of personal <laughs> contact with those people. Uh, they would not want to have any contact with me, I'm sure. That's why, you know, it's like I, I, I protect people from having any kind of <laughs> contact with me as a toxic <laughs> a toxic pseudoscientist. Uh, Do you think um, perhaps, I think, I think I've heard you speak about this before that there's this really annoying uh, when people talk about precognition there they might be getting mixed up with um with telepathy this idea yeah. of telepathy and uh, telepathy has always been a problem a pain point for me logically speaking um uh, and you, obviously even what we do here at you know at the show we get a lot of books about tele <laughs> we, we get a lot of bad books you know we have to sift through and yeah. find the good ones but um but do you think perhaps that might have um sort of stained somehow the reputation of precognition yeah certainly um although i i think in the eyes of i don't think you're going to find many kind of mainstream scientists who 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 would make a distinction between precognition and telepathy in you know in their estimation i mean it's all for them it's all pseudoscience um uh, i my personal position on this and it's a very controversial one um you know, and very few parapsychologists would agree with me here, but my my position is that until someone shows me compelling evidence otherwise, that what it gets called and assumed to be telepathy in in research studies and in people's personal experiences is virtually always actually precognition. Um, people precognizing, finding out. You know, instead of, you know, people imagine, you know, I wake up, you know, with a dream that, you know, my sister was in a car accident and I call her up on the phone and she tells me, oh, my God, I was just in a car accident. They imagine that they had like a direct, you know, contact across time. I'm sorry, across space to their their sister. OK, um, it's very counterintuitive, very people don't think well in terms of the time dimension. OK, it's it's so, so counterintuitive. Um, but. You know, I, I argue, and often you can find evidence of this that they're really precognizing that phone call. Now, that dream got them to make that phone call, which is 
than that loop we're talking about. Because, you know, indeed, we fulfill these futures. Uh, in this case, a future where I got a call for, or I call, talked to my sister on the phone and, and she had, was in a car accident. You know, we fulfill these futures, you know, because of our dreams or whatever. So there's that looping quality to them. But um, uh, and that's another part of the, the whole issue that just that's just too kind of uh, hard to understand and hard to grasp and wrap our heads around. So we grasp for a simpler explanation. And telepathy uh, is that simpler explanation um, for a lot of people. Same with synchronicity, you know, the, Jung's famous term. the most overused um, word in history. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, um, I did a. I've I've I was having a conversation about this the other day with a friend actually. It's, it's a, that just feels like an endless rabbit hole you can fall down synchronicity, and if it, it, there needs to be some kind of way of determining like uh, meaningful synchronicity over just seeing synchronicities everywhere. It's like the if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail it, it, to some people. It's I don't know. Yeah. It drives me insane. I see it all the time, and but um, obviously Jung's synchronicity makes you know a lot more sense than the kind of this version of synchronicity I keep seeing out in the world at the moment. It's, um, I don't know. It's yeah. It, it drives me a bit, um, a bit mad at times. It's interesting. Um, have you heard of a guy called Robert Monroe before? Um, yeah. yeah, I think he encountered a similar issue where he was looking at his, um, I can't remember what the tech, well, it was the gateway experience, wasn't it? I think his, mm -hmm. his thing was called where, and he really struggled with this kind of, I think we were talking about it before the interview, this kind of borderland area where science and kind of the occult and the paranormal kind of, they, they really butt up against each other a little bit. And uh, he seemed to have that same issue where I think he was terrified that the scientific community would look at what he was doing as a kind of paranormal kind of thing. In fact, in interviews, he used to always say, you know, this isn't a cult, this isn't, you know, and he was very, you know, intense about it. But interestingly, later on, and like, um, in the same interview sometimes he'll start off saying that and at the end of the interview he'll say but <laughs> and he'll start to talk a little bit like an occultist it's quite strange you yeah. know so it is interesting how these these kind of worlds it's like the two magnets trying to push you know opposite magnets trying yeah. to push against each other a bit isn't it it's, mm -hmm. it's very strange but um uh, right Let's talk a little bit about, uh, I think it's J.W. Dunn, who's the kind mm -hmm. of original, yeah. kind of the OG, as it were, of precognition, isn't he? In, in, in study yes. of precognition, I should say. Yes. Um, and how did uh, Dunn's work influence time loops? Oh, huge. I mean, he was, he, he was the, uh, you know, the original kind of theorist of precognition and especially precognitive dreams. Um, so he, so who was he? He was a um, soldier right, right around the turn of the last century. Um, he fought in the Boer War. Uh, he was an English um, soldier. But then after he left the military service, he went into aeron uh, aeronautical engineering. I mean, he was one of the first, I mean, this was the, early, the very early days of flight. And he was one of, he was like one of the first, uh, aviation engineers in England, designing very innovative um, planes. Um, he he was obsessed with like divide, designing ta planes without tails uh, that would sort of steer in some different way. It was kind of an obsession of his, which kind of really just never <laughs> never panned out. Um, but you know, he would he was he was like designed like the earliest flying wing 
kind of planes. They were biplanes, but imagine a, a flying wing biplane. Um, that's kind of like what what he was designing, you know, in the in the first decades um, of the century. And then he became influential uh, in the sort of emerging um, kind of defense contractor industry in, in in Britain. So he was kind of an he was I guess his importance there was more as an advocate for the for the aviation industry uh, with the you know defense um, people in in Britain at the time. But he brought but he all his life he'd had precognitive dreams. And uh, he had a couple of very stunning ones during his time in the in the army. And this led him um, later on to sort of apply his kind of engineering mind to figuring out what was going on with these dreams. And he was the first to sort of figure out like the prevailing interpretation of these kinds of experiences at the time was telepathy. That is a, that was a term that was coined in 1882 by, by a, an English psychologist named Frederick Myers. And it was a very, it was sort of the dominant framing for all kinds of paranormal phenomena um, at the time. And, uh, but Dunn, you know, he recorded his, his dreams. He either recorded them or told them to someone so that there was kind of an objective, you know, record there of the dream. And then, you know, he would pay attention to, to when the dreams, you know, played out in, in his life. And he was able to determine, uh, in a, in a very ingenious fashion that these dreams were not telepathy and were not, these other kind of possible psychic modalities, you know, they were not kind of mediumistic kind of contacts with the dead and so on that the dreams, you know, really came from his future experiences, including his future learning experiences, like reading a story about, uh, about, a you know, a terrible fire in, in the newspaper, you know, you know, uh, the night before he'd had a dream that, that dramatized, you know, this fire in a very specific way, which then, you know, was confirmed in this news story. Um, oftentimes when there was a, the, he, he sort of had a forensic mindset. Okay. That's why it's not a term that he used, but, you know, if you imagine someone studying a plane crash and kind of forensically, you know, picking apart what happened and what sequence and, and, and so on, that was the, and he did that with plane crashes, you know, he was, you know, a lot of his planes and other people's planes crashed, you know, so he had to study what happened and he brought that same mindset to the study of his dreams. And he was able to determine in so many cases that the, the information in his dream did not come af across space from another person's mind, which would be telepathy. It did not come, uh, just from, objective events out in the world, which would be clairvoyance. It did not come from contact with the dead. For instance, there was a famous case of, of, a, of a test pilot crashing, uh, uh, and he had a dream about it a couple nights beforehand, um, uh, which, you know, or at the time, most people would have assumed that, oh, it was the dead pilot coming and talking to him in his dream. But he was able to determine based on what the pilot said in his dream versus what actually happened in reality uh, that the pilot would have known was happening as he crashed. He was able to determine that, no, the dream came from his own reading of the of the report about, about the crash afterwards. So he brought a very, uh, very careful mindset to the study of this and um and his book 
which he didn't actually write and publish his book until the late 20s, 1927, I think. Uh, it's called An Experiment with Time. And it was, uh, you know, it's full of precognitive dream examples uh, that, you know, anyone who works with this stuff will recognize immediately. Yeah, I mean, this is how it, you know, the, the, there's a real consistency to how these dreams happen in our lives. And uh, he, and his book was, uh, was super, was especially inspiring for my second book, Precognitive Dreamwork in the Long Self, because uh, Experiment with Time was essentially an early work of citizen science. He was try he said, "Look, this is this is what I've observed again and again and again, and here are so many examples. But I want you to do this for yourself. Here's how you can do this for yourself." And so he gave the reader instructions, very simple instructions for how they can study this question in their own lives, um, because that's what he felt was needed. You know, it's like, it's not enough for me here to talk about my own dreams. I need people to replicate this. Um, and, uh, and so it's that citizen science aspect of it that I think is so inspiring. And that's what I was trying to do with precognitive dreaming in the long self. I was essentially building on his, uh, very simple method for how you can study this in your own dreams, uh, adding, uh, a, a little, uh, tweaking it a little bit to, I think, enable you to net, you know, a huge, much bigger number of, of dreams, uh, precognitive dreams in your journal. Um, but I was basically following Dunn's lead. Um, yeah, he's the, he is the, he is the, the person uh, who, the, the pioneer in this field. It's another one of those things where the kind of the occult and science are, are rubbing up against each other again, because um, we uh, barely a show goes by without mentioning him, but Alistair Crowley was also very obsessed with dream journaling you know he uh, is one of the first things you learn on, on his magical system is constant dream journaling like recording it and recording it observing what happens and it's interesting that again those two worlds have kind of kind of butted up against each other there but uh, um one of the things you touch on in both books um and i think it'll be for people that don't know the story it's it's kind of a a huge event that happened with Carl Jung and the Scarab. Um, yeah. As, could mm -hmm. we, uh, could you take us through the, um, you know, why, A, why that was so important to Jung, because it, I mean, it really was a huge, you know, event for him, but also how that was, a, a you know, of such importance to time loops and and pre-cognitive pre, yeah, pre dream work. There we go. Got it up. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the Scarab incident, this is like the, um, it's probably the most famous thing that that Jung ever wrote, you know, and it's it's just it's just one paragraph in his um, monograph uh, synchronicity. And then there's a, a lecture or, a, or a, I think it's a lecture that, that he gave around the same time. And that's and he also describes it in a little more detail in that. And they're both published in that slim, you know, synchronicity volume that we've all seen. Um, but at at the time, until just a few years ago, honestly, until just 10 years ago, nobody knew anything about who this woman was. But the story is that, that there was this very hyper-rationalistic uh, patient in his clinic who, you know, he, she was kind of closed off. Um, he was he was kind of bored with the therapy. He didn't it wasn't going anywhere. And this patient was just very hyper-rational and, and closed off to what, what he had to offer. And uh, when day she comes into the clinic with a dream that she had the night before of somebody giving her a valuable golden piece of jewelry uh, in the shape of a scarab beetle okay um and right as he she's telling 
him this dream, he hears a tapping on the window beside him, uh, and he, he turns and looks, and it's a it's a rose chafer beetle, a very common beetle uh, in the in those you know latitudes, uh, but it's you know a close relative of the scarab, and so he like opens the window, cups it in his hand, and hands it to this woman, uh, and says, "Here's your scarab." Okay, now he you know amazing magical moment and this this story is quoted again and again and again in uh inspirational literature you know um and it was his kind of key case of synchronicity okay this is you know this is from his standpoint sitting in that chair behind his desk um he's seeing this as a convergence between hearing this story about uh, you know, about a scarab from his patient and then a scarab arriving at his window. And it's like, oh, wow, a coincidence here, you know, that this is highly meaningful. And this, this archetype, uh, you know, the scarab being a symbol an ancient, ancient Egyptian symbol of rebirth, so on, you know, comes into his life and into the patient's life, you know, right the moment she needs it to, to what he said, puncture a hole in her, puncture the needed hole in her, her resistance. And like, after that moment, like the therapy went forward swimmingly because suddenly she was like blown away by this kind of shamanic, you know, uh, moment in her therapy. Okay. Well, uh, in 2013, uh, the curator at the Jung archive in Zurich, um, named Vicente de Mora, uh, published a paper in, I, I, I'm forgetting the journal, but he published uh, a paper revealing the identity of this, of this woman, um, uh, as well as sort of giving information about where else she appears in Jung's writings. It's all, all anonymous in, you know, that's typical in any clinician will, you know, write about their patients anonymously or give them a pseudonym. Uh, well, her, her name was uh, Maggie Quarles Van Ufford, and she was a Dutch uh, aristocrat. She was a young Dutch aristocrat. She came from a very wealthy family in Holland, and she had moved to uh, Zurich just a couple years earlier before this event probably happened. It probably happened in 1920, and there are various reasons why I think that that's probably when it occurred, although we don't know for sure. But um, she had moved to Zurich with two, her two sisters, um, so that one of those sisters could enter th treatment with Jung. Um, and then she wound up entering treatment with Jung about a year later. But in any event, um, we know now where else she appears in Jung's writings. There are a few other anecdotes in Jung's writings, which are also her. Um, and Vicente de Mora revealed um, uh, another instance of another precognitive dream that she had had um, in her therapy. So this is the thing. Jung did not, he was really not interested in precognitive dreams. I mean, he'd had his own precognitive dreams um, uh, and his patients were having precognitive dreams all the time, but he reframed it all as synchronicity. He, he wasn't interested in the sort of the dreaming brain reaching into its future. That was not a concept he was able to like wrap his head around. And to be fair, very few people at the time could wrap their heads around that. Um, uh, so he saw it as the universe kind of uh, converging on 
you know, meaningfully converging on the the individual's psyche, and like you know, basically he saw he saw you know the universe as delivering this beetle right when it was needed to you know puncture the needed hole in, in Maggie's uh, resistance, um, but. Uh, you know, the, it makes my, it's far simpler to understand that this was simply a done dream. This was a precognitive dream. It was a dream just like those that Dunn described again and again and again. And they don't have, you know, you don't need to think about archetypes. This is just, you know, this patient, there was this going to be this meaningful moment in her therapy the next day. So she has a precognitive dream about it. And as is always the case with these situations, it's a, there's a time looping aspect because obviously that situation wouldn't have occurred had she not been telling him her dream. So there's a causal, you know, there's there's a linear causal component there, but because she precognized it, there's a retro causal component, and so you have a loop. And um, Jung, and to be fair, very few people at the time would have been able to to grasp that. That's like. That, that sounds, it feels like a paradox, okay? It's a tautology, in fact, which is the opposite of a paradox, but uh, it's, it, it feels, you know, that's, that's just too counterintuitive. Um, but the thing is, this was happening again and again and again with his other patients, too. And this is, I have a long chapter in Time Loops that, uh, that talks about talks about this. Um, uh, but it happened several times with Maggie. Um she had a on, on one occasion she had a precognitive dream uh, about a very particular situation and Jung sort of kissing her and and telling her about this situation. Well, she goes to his office and he has just had this like um, inspiration and reached into a book, uh, in fact, a book by Frederick Myers that we were talking about earlier and read this story and it matched this dream. And so she told he told her you know, this story that he had just read. And again, so she had been precognizing this moment, this significant moment in her, in her, in her therapist's office. You got to remember that, that moments in therapy moments in psychotherapy are often, you know, really meaningful moments, um, really powerful. Uh, often their epiphanies, their breakthrough experiences in a person's life. Um, so they're the kinds of things that the precognitive brain focuses on. And adding to that, she was in love with Jung. Okay, she she had what you know psychoanalysts call it the transference. Okay, the the patient falls in love with their their therapist very readily, and she was you know he was he was this god to her, and and adding to it he was in love with her because we happen to know that she is the character she is the not character the patient in an unpublished in a in an essay that Jung wrote on the counter transference, that is the patient's, that's the doctor's love for the patient, the doctor's erotic feelings for the patient, um, that he never published, but she's the patient in that, in that essay. And, uh, he had, you know, powerful erotic feelings for Maggie. Well, this kind of, any kind of situation where you have a thwarted, like thwarted erotic connection that you can't, you're not allowed to express. Now, Jung is widely believed to have had affairs with some of his patients. Uh, there is no evidence that he had an affair with Maggie, but he definitely thought of her as this, you know, very sexual, beautiful, um, you know, magnetic 
person. Okay. And he, you know, he had powerful feelings for her. And, um, that's exactly any kind you have time you have thwarted connection. That's when psychic phenomena are going to manifest. And people again are going to interpret that as telepathy, blah, blah, blah. But, but it's there. It's, I believe it's precognitive really. And it's, Precognition is kind of a, I call it sometimes an orienting function. It orients us towards these moments of meaningful connection. And there's nothing more meaningful often than, than a really powerful encounter in your therapist's office where you're this God who you're in love with, you know, uh, not only validates you, you know, validates your dream or your whatever neurotic thing that you've brought him to talk about, but then gives you this, this little mini lecture on, on, uh, Egyptian symbolism, because that's what happened after the scarab thing. You know, he then proceeds to tell her about the symbolism of, of Egyptian scarab beetles and so on. So that's like, there was this incredibly validating, fascinating moment in his office, um, which she was precognizing beforehand. So you can, you know, reread these instances. And the, the thing is, there are so many stories like this in Jung's writing that make much more sense uh, through a precognitive lens. And, uh, you know, there, uh, and there's a, there's an advantage. You know, people ask, well, why can't you just call it synchronicity? Well, you can, if you want, it's a fine word to describe a meaningful, you know, coincidence, but, but the theory of precognitive dreaming adds immeasurably, I think, to, to these experiences, because for instance, you know, the dreaming brain will not only precognize something in your future, but it will also, it, it'll, it'll uh, pack in a lot of meaning uh, symbolically to that. So, uh, you know, if you think about the transformation, the symbolic transformation that happened between, you know, receiving a wriggling live, you know, beetle from your therapist to some, someone giving you a gold, valuable golden piece of scarab jewelry, okay? That dream image, that dream image condensed not only the fact that she was going to hear about the, the scarab's symbolism in Egyptian religion, but also the value of that moment in her life. It was precious, valuable, golden, okay? And it indeed was like one of the capital moments in her life. Um, and indeed, you know, she became the star of, of the young show, essentially, you know, that his book wasn't published until three decades later, but she was still friends with Jung. She was central in his, in his circle all her life and all his life. Um, and, you know, she would have known that, that that was her in that book. So, you know, I, that, that too is a situation that we're liable to precognize our, you know, our own appearance in, in a book or something. Uh, so there's all kinds of ways in which that moment was, you know, incredibly meaningful and central in her, in her life. So it makes every bit of sense that she dreamed about it in advance. So talking about like symbology, uh, you were saying earlier that sometimes people might not recognize precognition in their dreams, but do you think it could possibly be that it's just that our symbols, the symbols we use to sort of describe things have changed in the, you know, in this period of time that, you know, something that we might say, I don't know, I'm thinking of an example, like a, a telephone is now, you know, like a small obelisk looking thing. It might be that the, the physical symbolic representation of this thing's just changed and we're just not seeing this thing as a, a futuristic thing we just don't recognize it is there any is there any possibility in that do you think or um i'm not sure i'm exactly understanding your question so you... if is it possible that we're just not 
rec- we're not recognizing um, future events, let's say, in our precognition, oh. because the things we use to describe those events have changed. And um, yeah. Yeah. Or, or the, you know, you may have a dream, you know, and, and then literally, you know, 20 years later, um, have it plays out in real life. And, and you had no way of, you know, there's all kinds of reasons you had no way of understanding at the time you had the dream that this was going to be something that was going to happen in your life 20 years later. But among those changes that have happened, you know, could be, you know, technological things. I'll give you an example of this actually from my own, um, my own experience. I, uh, had, um, so I was, I had a dream. This is in my journal. It's all dated and everything. Um, and it, I think it was around, it was around 2000, I think there, or give or take maybe 1999 or 2000, 2001, something like that. Um, no, I was 2000. I'm pretty sure. And, um, in the dream, I was in a, in a, a restaurant on a cliff, Okay, it was a restaurant with a big glass pane of glass windows overlooking the ocean, and there were and there were dolphins, kind of stylized dolphins playing in the ocean, and and the sky over the water opened up. It was like a it was like a, a kind of a spindle shaped kind of opening or a vagina shaped kind of opening in the sky, uh, like a like a portal or a or a wormhole opening up. It was very black inside and, 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 and I expected a UFO to come out of it. Okay. Um, anyway, very striking dream, which I wrote down. Well, 19 years later, and I don't know if it's to the, to the day, I don't think it's to the day, but 19 years later, I was at the Esalen retreat in Big Sur, um, California. I had been, you know, because of my book Time Loops, I'd been invited to a UFO gathering there, not gathering, a UFO symposium there. And some of the biggest figures in ufology were were in this symposium. And on the last day of the symposium, I was having lunch, I'm sorry, breakfast in the Esalen cafeteria, which is this lovely little kind of a lot of benches, and but it's got a gigantic uh, big glass window looking out onto the ocean. Okay. Very much like what was in my dream. And at the time I had the dream, I'd never even heard of Esalen. I mean, I, I, you know, this was, you know, and all week I'd been watching dolphins play in the water down there. And I was having breakfast, I was having breakfast with Jacques Vallée, who, you know, As you did. The most- <laughs> I was having breakfast with, you know, my hero, at the time, like my, you know, he, this is, this, this guy was like, you know, a God to me, you know, and I was having, you know, I'd spent a whole week hanging out with Jacques Vallée. It was just, it was just magical anyway. But, you know, he was talking about an, an artist friend of his. Um, uh, and I forget what he was saying about this artist, but then he turns his iPhone to me. Now, of course, at the time I had this dream, there were no iPhones. Anyway, he turned his iPhone to me to show me this painting by, or uh, draw an illustration by this artist. And the illustration showed like a vagina shaped, like portal opening in the sky over a beach of, of people standing on a beach. And it was like, and it was like, it was the image from my dream. So like this, you know, so, you know, in a sense, you know, yeah, there was a portal in the sky, <laughs> you know, it was an iPhone being held up <laughs> to me, <laughs> you know, a piece of technology that did not, you know, exist, whatever. And it was, you know, in the setting of the dream and so on. 
uh, yeah, like there's just no way when you have a dream uh, about it, you know, to know how or when it's going to play out. You, even if you have, um, you know, I've in the course of studying this, I no longer believe that, oh, just occasional dreams are precognitive. I think all dreams are probably, probably contain precognitive material in one way or another. We just don't recognize it. And, um, but there's absolutely no way of having a dream and knowing how or when or in what way this thing is going to play out in your life, especially when it's so, you know, shot through with symbolism and stuff. But, you know, honestly, well, there wasn't that much symbolism in this dream. It was, it was a, kind of a literal moment and you know the only thing is that that you know the portal opening up was a picture that jacques Vallée, the portal in my dream remember i expected a ufo to come out of it so it was associated with ufos and uh and here the most prominent ufologist in history is is showing me on his personal iphone a picture of a portal opening up in the sky <laughs> It's just stuff like that uh but yeah i guess that kind of answers your question that yeah like there's no way of knowing um, sort of the, the, the delivery of the information could change right. kind of was right. one thing uh, right. we interviewed um mark jacobson recently a journalist about a conspiracy theorist who died um years ago now william cooper um and one right. of william cooper's um party tricks if you will was his uh, knack for prediction um mm. and i wonder I mean, with him, when I look at the way he predicted things, including his own death, which we'll talk about in a second, but um, yeah. mm -hmm. that one's a bit different. But usually you can see how he predicted a lot of the things that he predicted. It's just deduction. Um, mm -hmm. So do, do you, I guess the first part of the question is, do you often see, do you have problems where precognition and deduction are kind of misinterpreted? Like, it's, you know, sometimes it could, um, sometimes things that can seem like, precognition are actually when you look at them a little bit more deeply can be d explained through deduction but also mm. with william cooper's case the the one that really struck me was um his prediction of his own death where he predicted his own death its location how it was going to happen and the time of it and that to me didn't that didn't feel like deduction it doesn't feel like you could have predicted those three things that feels more like precognition to me sure yeah no, i agree I, i'm a, i'm vaguely aware of that uh, that instance, I don't know much about his life. I've got actually, I've got his book. Oh, yeah, everyone, got Beyond the Pale Horse, yeah, everyone's got that. <laughs> the biography that was written about him, maybe that's by that author. Yeah, it I'm is. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Mark Jackson. I just have not had time to delve into uh, it, but I'm aware that he recognized his death in that way. Sure, I mean that's it's very common. Um, it's very common in the annals of of you know artists and writers that they will you know precognize sort of the manner and you know their death. I mean, this is a very common thing and so uh, yeah i have no pro i have no doubt that that was probably precognitive um as far as the the distinction between precognition and prediction you know you know where you're sort of deducing or inferring you know things yeah this is an issue that comes up particularly with the study of art and uh and and precognition and which is, is i've just written a book on this um uh, because yeah, I mean, s science fiction writers, for instance, um, we, you know, famously science fiction writers often predict some, uh, technological development or whatever that happens. And, you know, to what extent is this, you know, are they just kind of inferring things from existing trends? Uh, and it's kind of their job to predict the future. So it's very hard sometimes to distinguish, um, you know, 
precognition from prediction in that sense. But pre, but the more you work with pre, precognition, the more you realize that it really, it keys in on very, very singular things that can't be predicted. Uh, and it's kind of almost the biosignature, honestly, of a precognitive dream or or insight uh, that, that there's just something singular and just completely unpredictable in the precognitive component. Um, so uh, let me give you a couple examples. Like here's a, an example of a very ambiguous case in science fiction, you know, where you could really call it prediction versus precognition, it's really hard to tell, uh, is Martin Caden. Uh, he was a thriller, sci-fi thriller writer in the 1960s. Um, he wrote uh, he wrote the book that The $66 Million Man was based on, but he also wrote a novel called Marooned um, in, in the mid-60s. Uh, and and then he it was about a uh, a space an accident in a space capsule uh, that that strands an astronaut in orbit. And then he and then with the Apollo program, he rewrote it. He sort of revised it to be an Apollo mission, and in 1968 uh, uh, released it. Uh, you know, as an Apollo mission that gets stranded in space, and it requires you know full time effort from ground control to kind of bring these astronauts home well you know i what is it two years later the apollo 13 disaster occurs and it, in many ways it was very similar to what happened in his novel but on the other hand you know if you're a thriller writer and you're looking for a really topical subject for a thriller you know especially a sci-fi thriller well you know an accident happening on a moon mission would be a kind of an obvious topic you know <laughs> yeah. and uh and certainly other artists of the time were writing in a similar vein. I mean, you know, Space Oddity by David Bowie. I mean, same kind of thing. You're, you know, it's it's very kind of natural for anybody to imagine a disaster and how exciting that might be if there was a space disaster. So is that precognition or is that prediction? And it's like it's, it's forever in a kind of liminal uh, indeterminate zone. But here's another here's another example from a science fiction writer that I think is very clearly precognitive. Um, Philip K. Dick in, I mean, there's tons of examples in his work, yeah, but my favorite right, author, <laughs> right? Well, he, in 1960, I believe, uh, he wrote a book, uh, called, um, it's had various titles over the years and I'm not sure which title it, it originally had. I think the, uh, sins of our fathers or something like that. I'm, I'm not sure, but it's, it, it was basically about these entrepreneurs building, uh, an Android, Abraham Lincoln. Okay. Oh, yeah, I've read that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. And then, but no, he couldn't find a publisher, so it just sat unread in his desk drawer. Uh, and then two years later, Disney unveils its, you know, most popular exhibit ever, which is the animatronic Abraham Lincoln. Okay. Now, there are aspects of this which make it, you know, you could argue that this is prediction. I mean, the, the 1962, I think, was the anniversary of the Civil War, and there was a lot of thought about commemorating the Civil War, and that was that may have been in Phil Dick's mind and in Disney's mind, you know, when coming up with this idea. Um, so, I mean, you can make an argument that he was just predicting, yeah, but... Um, but when you delve, when you drill down into the story, it's like it's very uncannily precognitive. There's the story sort of centers on this kind of um, obsession of one of the inventors with this young woman that they've gotten to 
assist them in, and especially whose job it is is to give verisimilitude to the Lincoln Android by you know including there's a scene where she stays up late uh, late at night applying makeup to its face to make it seem real. Okay, well Phil Dick wrote this story. He was living in um, Northern California at the time, uh, uh, or outside of the, or I guess in I guess he was living in uh, near the Bay Area at that time. Anyway, he um, so but ten years later he found he was living in Orange County. Okay, not too far from Disneyland, and. Uh, one of the and he he met a woman living in his apartment complex who a young woman who said oh yeah I, I work at Disneyland and he said oh what do you do at Disneyland uh, well I uh, I apply makeup to the animatronic Lincoln late at night uh, so that it looks fresh and real in the morning you know so that you know that's that kind of detail that you're going to get in a in in precognition is that is of that level of specificity you know uh and and detail that that kind of marks a precognitive experience or a precognitive insight or a precognitive dream from something that just well anybody could predict that um so it's those examples those things that that really kind of make precognition stand out from the kind of general uh, realm of prediction. And I really think these are two separate functions in the brain. They have nothing to do with each other. I think, um, uh, you know, I think precognition is really a, a function of, of information reaching us, you know, totally unpredictable information reaching us, uh, traveling backwards in our nervous system somehow. Um, Prediction, I think, is much more a conscious. It's a function of the conscious intellect and conscious um, uh, ruminating brain. You know, that, you know, people often think of precognition as something that's like you from disasters. But, you know, really, it's more your your conscious prediction that's going to save you from disasters. You know, it's like, you know, I, I often you know, like contrast, you know, the precognitive dreaming brain with the insomniac, awake, worrying, you know, brain, you know, like at 3am, you know, your brain running through counterfactuals, thinking about, uh, you know, disasters, you know, financial disasters, or, you know, terrible things happening to your kids or all, you know, the, the kind of those conscious thought processes, those are, you know, you're training yourself to be alert, and to and to to you know you're kind of programming yourself in a way uh, to be alert for for counterfactuals that you want to avoid and so on and you are sort of helping you know steer your life you know in a in a very rational way towards better outcomes and I think so I think there's a real contrast between what the dreaming brain and the precognitive inspired brain is doing and what prediction, you know, that predictive quality of where we are sort of comparing counterfactuals and so on. This is one of my beefs with people who write about precognition. They often say, oh, we're precognizing alternative realities and alternative futures and, and uh, you know, different timelines. And, and so you predict a bad thing. Well, you can change your future and all that. I think that that's nonsense. I mean, I think you know, we are precognizing an actual future in a very symbolic, indirect way. Um, but th those counterfactual realities are part of our conscious, our conscious um, problem-solving, problem-averting, um, 
uh, inferential deductive uh, brain that, you know, they, it's, which is also very important for us, you know, it's very important for our survival, but they're very, two very different things. Um, so what, no, no, talk about question. Philip K. Dick, um, in, in the book, uh, you, you've mentioned briefly a scientist called Kozarev, um, who's, yeah. uh, I was wondering, could you talk about Kozarev a little bit? He's kind of, in, he's an interesting character, like time torsions and all this kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah, it, I've only recently actually kind of first heard about him, and but he's a fascinating mm-hmm. character. I don't know a lot about him. I just I sort of know about him as among this really really interesting group of of char- Russian characters called cosmists. It's sort of a this this trend in Russian thought uh, since the 18th century. Or sorry, since the 19th century of of uh, a very very uniquely Russian kind of mix of science and spirituality and occultism um, that you don't kind of thing you don't really get so much in 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 Western thinking, which likes to separate those domains. But there's a sort of a whole trend of, of futurists and scientists in, in Russia that have um, had been much more open to uh, really out there ideas, including precognition. And um, Kozarev as far as I know, he conducted um, experiments uh, with time um, at a lab, um, you know, and putting people in these kind of spiral mirrors and stuff. Yeah, because that of red mirrors, focus. yeah. yeah because of red mirrors mm-hmm. and kind of like give them out-of-body experiences and UFO experiences. It was – it's it's – it's wild stuff. I don't know <laughs> anything more specific than that. I know that he was important for Philip K. Dick because uh, uh, some of the things that Philip K. Dick wrote in his book Ubik um, then seemed to match uh, things that he read in an article by Kozarev that he read a couple of years later. And so he thought it sort of, and this kind of gave him the idea that, yeah, he was precognizing um, uh things that he was going to read and that that was part of his creative process. So in a way it's kind of almost the a template for the book I've just written about the precognitive imagination and its role in artistic and literary creativity. This idea that we're, you know, not only, not only prophesying or precognizing, you know, future uh, events, but but especially experiences, they focus on personal experiences and reading experiences are particularly important for a writer. Um, you know, these experiences of reading some amazing idea in a book, that's like a that's a that's a powerful thing in the life of a writer. And uh, and if writers are getting their ideas from other writers, <laughs> uh, uh, there's a there's a French critic named Pierre Bayard uh, who has this idea of, of precognition uh, par anticipation or precognition, precognition uh, I'm sorry, uh, plagiar, plagiarism par anticipation. So, so uh, I'm pronouncing that terribly, but, but uh, it's basically plagiarism by anticipation um uh and the idea that writers are getting their ideas from other writers precognitively uh which i think is a you know it's a fantastic idea and it's totally true and that's i've got a section in my book which is about cases of exactly this of of writers who are uncannily uh precognizing the works of other writers it happens with film as well doesn't it i mean there was a i'm trying to think of the that's right there was a two films that came out almost back to back um 
Uh, one was a film called Dread. It's based on um, a, a comic book character here in the UK called Judge Dread. Um, mm-hmm. And the, the storyline of that is that they um, go into this building. Uh, they're kind of police officers going into a building to try and arrest um, someone at the top of this large. It's a large tower. And then this, I think within weeks, another film came out called The Raid, which is about a bunch of policemen going into this tall tower. And there was this huge sort of backwards and forwards between them. But you just think, well, maybe that's an example of what you were just talking about there. It's this kind of, it's just too much of a coincidence that, and there's no way, I think like one was written two years earlier and then the film came out and it's, yeah, it's all this kind of, it's interesting, isn't it? When the, that that's, kind of thing. I, I have never heard of that example, but I know I'm going to, I'm going to look that up as soon as we're done with this interview <laughs> because that, yeah, that kind of thing happens all the time. And uh, I've got some, some great, and I think very surprising examples of this, uh, in the book, here's one that I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll throw out there as a teaser. Um, you know, the, f- f- perhaps the funniest moment of the funniest movie ever made, uh, is the, the descent of the tiny Stonehenge monument onto the stage. In, <laughs> yeah. In Spot Spot yeah. Okay. yeah. And then you got the dwarves kind of dancing around it, getting tangled in the wires, <laughs> you, know? you know, hilarious moment. Well, heavy metal insiders at the time thought, that this was based on something that really happened to the band Black Sabbath about six months before the film was released. Um, they had they had a song, uh, an instrumental on their latest album called Stonehenge, <laughs> and they wanted and they commissioned a company to build them a Stonehenge monument for their st- stage show. And unfortunately, the instructions for the monument were delivered in meters instead of feet. So the, the the monument that was delivered to them was was like three times too big, All right? And they were unable to use it. Um, but there was like a there was they actually did try to do a dress rehearsal, and they had a dwarf dressed up as the devil like jump off the top of the of this of this monument onto a pile of mattresses or something like that. And it was just like it was like so embarrassingly like silly that they you know they scrapped the whole idea. Um, but the thing is. The Stonehenge scene and the whole film in Spinal Tap had been filmed as much as a year or more earlier. And there's even like a, a demo or a, yeah, like a demo reel of the film that includes a version of the of the Stonehenge scene uh, that totally preceded this thing that happened with Black Sabbath. So it's like this uncanny, you know, <laughs> uncannily specific, uh, uh, you know, moments uh but yeah this is happening this happens all the time with you know in all art forms and you know it's it, we have we have a we have a kind of a surplus of examples of it from writing because uh writers leave a big paper trail don't they i mean it's not only in their writing but in their interviews and then they, they there's biographies of them so you can really track this kind of stuff uh really well with writers but uh, it happens with musicians filmmakers uh on and on painters. So I've got examples from sculptors and painters and, and stuff like that uh, in the book too. But um, that's one of my favorite examples right there. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Um, so for the, for the curious, um, how do you, how do you sort of work with pre-cognitive dreams? Like it, it's, you know, it feels like time loops was kind of setting out the, the cause almost. And then this, uh, the second book, um, feels more hands-on and kind of um, anecdotal. And um, so for people wanting to work, this would probably be the one to go for, wouldn't it? Rather than time loops. Yeah. But could you talk to us a little bit about 
the kind of methodology behind it, I, I suppose. Absolutely. And I've broken it down into a very easy three-step process. JW Dunn had a two-step process. I've added a middle step that he didn't add, and I think it will it 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 takes it to a new level. But um, uh, basically, so the three steps are number one, and this is something that probably a lot of your your viewers and listeners are doing already, which is record your dreams, but be really rigorous about it. Record all your dreams. That includes the meaningless dream, you know, or the meaningless seeming, you know, nothing dreams that don't seem to be remarkable. The dream things where you just remember like uh, a couple images or, an, or one image, whatever, write it all down. Okay. Uh, and date it, you know, keep it in a dated journal so that you have it have dates with it um that's the first step and that's intuitive right uh and just keep a keep a journal by your bed you know if, you, if you're not used to dream journaling just the simple act of buying a journal and have, having a pen and keeping it next to your bed acts almost as setting an intention you'll suddenly suddenly start remembering your dreams and, you and start, you'll notice uh, that they get longer and longer the entries i find that the more you record yeah, the, lo the more detailed yeah, they become yeah, when you start out doing, you know, dream work, my God, you're rewarded with, you know, really fascinating long dreams, just full of detail. But get all those details in there. You know, one tip, uh, I guess, you know, you're, you'll when you first wake up, you know, and maybe you want to go back to sleep or whatever. You first wake up from a dream. You don't want to have to sit down and get up and record the whole dream then and there jot just a few notes just kind of the major kind of images just jot down the major major images because that will serve as a prompt later in the day when you have some time to sit down and then write the whole dream out if you don't write some prompts down you're going to forget a lot of it but it's just having a few like a few kind of key terms or key key objects or situations in the dream to sort of hang your memory on just having those prompts then will help you reconstruct the whole dream later on in the day when you have some time. Okay, so that's the first step. Um, and I'm going to go jump to the third step because this third step was J.W. Dunn's second step. And it's like really the most important thing, the thing that distinguishes precognitive dream work from any other kind of dream work. And that is go back to your dream records that night. You know, set your dream records aside, but then at night, go back to your dream record from that morning and from the previous few days and just kind of like read your dreams and, and sort of think, reflect on your dream records and the things that happened to you in your life over those two days. Because that's where, you know, failing to do that, failing to go back to your dream records is why most of us don't realize that we're precognitively dreaming all the time. Um, you know, because most dreams, most dreams are going to be precognitive of something happening in the next few days. And it's going to be something that not hugely monumental in your life. I mean, most of us don't have monumental things happening every day, um, but it'll be about rel relatively trivial things, something you saw on TV or something on Twitter or whatever. Um, but, but going back to the dream records in, immediately, you know, after those events, they'll be fresh in mind and it's like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, you'll start to see connections. Okay, but let me go to the second step because this is the thing that, that J.W. Dunn did not have his readers do, but this is, I think, really key um free when you're writing the dream down when you're first writing the dream down free associate on your on all the things you're writing down all the dream images the people the objects the situations in the dream 
free associate. And all that means, it's very, it doesn't, there's nothing complicated about free association. All it means is like, what's the first thing this reminds me of? Write that, those associations down with your dream record. So, you know, like you dream a certain, uh, random person, uh, that's like, oh yeah, like you were, you were just thinking of, of them in connection with some other thing. And often your dreams will be recognizable, have recognizable connections to your recent life. That's what Freud called day residues. You know, you'll, you know, something will crop up in a dream that, that had cropped up in daily life, you know, a day or two earlier. Okay. So, so write down those associations, you know, like, or, you know, a, a certain image in the dream reminds you of some movie you saw when you were a kid, you know, just get, get that down, write those associations down. Um, because often the connection that you make between when you're doing step three, the connection that you make between, you know, the dream and some event that happened recently in your life will relate to those associations. It won't relate directly to the dream image. It'll relate to the, like what that dream was associating to that. Those associations are kind of the donut hole, the kind of missing donut hole in the, in the dream. But that's, that's where the link to, to your life, to your future life is going to be found. Um, a dream, uh, the, the metaphor that I like to use is the dream builds a future tower out of past bricks. That is to say, it takes some future thought or experience. And because it's, it's not the future yet, all it has to work with is stuff that's already in your mind at that point you have the dream. So it'll take, it'll, it'll grab from, you know, this experience over here and that association over there, and it'll sort of assemble this, this tableau. Okay. Um, but the tableau itself is an idea or a thought or a wish from your future. Okay. At the time you have the dream. Um, so identifying that shape, that, 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 that core of the dream, um, uh, it helps to have those associations because they're a real important part of, of the kind of the brick, the brickwork of, of the dream. So those are the three steps, write your dreams down in detail, dated, um, free associate on the dreams as you're writing it down then set it all aside and then go back to your dream records every night, uh, at the end of the day, go back to the dream records from the previous few days. I mean, no one has the time to, to go through every dream record, uh, in your dream journal and think about every experience in your life. You know, you have to kind of keep set limits, but you know, go, th go through the recent, the recent few days dream records at the end of every night and then reflect on connections that may occur uh, between the dream records and events or experiences or thoughts that you had or obsessions that you had during that time frame. And people who do this uh, often find that they're able to identify precognition in about a quarter of their dreams, which is pretty good. I mean, that's, you know, if you're really re recording a lot of dreams, you know, if you're recording a dream a night, that's, you know, that's two, two precognitive dreams a week is, you know, you start to like build up uh, examples of dream precognition pretty readily um, doing this. And, um, you know, now a lot of examples are maybe not 
like super mind blowing. You know, it's like, yeah, this dream is like about this, this tweet that I saw the next morning. Uh, and it's not something that kind of thing that's going to be amazing when you show it to somebody else, but sooner or later, you're going to have some examples that are like, Oh, holy shit. That's, that's incredible. And, and when you have those experiences, the more you have them, the more it becomes a reality for you that your brain is something way more than you thought. Okay. That you are like, you are reaching across time, <laughs> you know, and that's mind blowing when you start to like, when it starts to become real for you, that you're actually doing that. <clears throat> and that this isn't just synchronicity. This isn't just, you know, vague, you know, the universe sort of sending you breadcrumbs or, or giving you the thumbs up or whatever. This is like, this is real that you are in touch with your future self <clears throat> on a nightly basis. Um, and sometimes you're in touch with yourself. And if you keep a dream journal over many years, you can notice uh, precognitive dreams that span decades, like the example I gave um, um, earlier. You know, I, I have several examples in my dream journals, and this is true of other dream workers I've worked with. They'll have examples that span decades in their life. And that is mind blowing to think that you can dream about some very, very specific moment in your life, very specific, like significant moment in your life. You could have had a dream about it decades, decades in the past, you know, when you had zero clue, you know, A, that dreams could be precognitive or important in any way. Suddenly you realize what that dream was. And like this connection across decades in your life is just, it's a, uh, it's a powerful, epiphany it's a gnosis mm-hmm. yeah yeah um, definitely yeah it's a it's, i'd be remiss to not bring up the subject of deja vu as well do you think that yeah. there's a relationship between precognition and deja vu there could be there could be i mean this is a common idea that that people have that you know like oh this feels familiar because i must have had a dream about it that i've forgotten about or some precognitive experience and it, and it could well be the trouble is there's no way to test that idea. Um, and, and part of what gives me a little bit of doubt about it is that it's possible to generate uh, deja vu experience, um, artificially in the absence of, uh, any real precognitive thing going on. I mean, uh, like, a, a I've got examples of that actually. I've got probe, a... really, yeah. The a neuroscientist could probe, could probe your brain in a certain spot and stimulate the feeling of familiarity. Um, so there's, there's a, you know, there's, you know, somewhere in the brain, there's a little circuit and, and, and it squirts a neurotransmitter, you know, and, and, and stimulates nerves to say, this is familiar. Okay. And, and that circuit is stimulated for all kinds of good reasons. And it's also possible that that circuit misfires. I mean, things in the brain misfire. And uh, so it's quite conceivable that deja vu experiences are just the misfiring of that. This is familiar circuit. Now, I don't want to be reductive and say that's all it is. I, I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, I think, yeah, yeah it could, there could be something significant to it. It could be a, 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 an indicator of, of something else significant about to happen. It could be, um, you know, there, there are all kinds of ways that deja vu is interesting. And I, I would not say ever say dismiss deja vu uh in some kind of reductive materialistic way but i just there's no way of answering your question uh, i I had a strange experience with it where i the first time i went to rome in italy um 
I walked into the Pantheon and I thought, oh my God, I've definitely I had that deja vu thing happen. And then it suddenly occurred to me, oh, it's because I've played it in Assassin's Creed recently, the video game. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, That's all it is. I just, I obsessively play those games. I like like to wander around in computer games and look at details. And So yeah, it, it could, there's so many variables it could be with uh, deja vu, isn't there? I think that it's, it's um, but yeah, no, I just thought I would bring it up because I just know someone will be screaming, what about deja vu? In the, in the but anyway, thank you so much. This has been really fascinating. I've really, I'm definitely going to have to have you back on, especially when the third book comes out. Um, oh, sure. Yeah, being from a creative background myself i'm particularly interested in in how that sort of pans out so have you been talking to publishers at all or are you uh just say i've just set out a proposal so oh, okay. you know we'll see i don't know yeah brilliant but um yeah excellent okay well thank you so much and um yeah hopefully we'll see you again soon yeah this has been been a pleasure thank you for having me on